on Friday, <clears throat> our border collie, Puppy, uh, taking a walk, got off leash and took off again. <laughs> and it took about, I don't know, 20 minutes, and we found her all the way up the creek bed where it divides into two, and then she just sort of followed as far as she could get, you know, covered in mud and covered, just happy as can be, but just completely lost, you know, like no idea where she was going. It reminded me uh, at the Rochester Zen Center's retreat center called Chapin Mill. It's a big piece of land, 135 acres of land and a wonderful retreat center. Uh, two friends of mine are caretakers there uh, and they have a husky that their son asked them to take care of because he didn't have the space in New York City. So she's been living with them at, at, uh, at the retreat center and uh, just a wonderful husky. This, this, uh, she's a dominant female. She goes when uh, they, used to, they used to board her uh, when they did Sashin retreat. And she would quickly establish her pack by going around to each dog and putting them down to the ground, very gently but authoritatively, just down. And before you know it, she had her pack of dogs for the week. Incredible presence. But uh, she had this habit of running away, often dragging her leash behind her. And it wasn't uncommon to get a call from a neighbor saying that they had found her tangled up in some briars, you know, the leash wrapping itself around some weeds or, le you know, and she couldn't find her way out, Tank completely tangled. Uh, they eventually got a GPS collar for her and uh, let her do her thing. But um, it, it struck me that the Buddhist story is somewhat similar to this. Um, as you recall, Siddhartha, before he was the Buddha, uh, he left home and he went on a search. He went on a journey and really trying to resolve the question of who he was, what was this great matter of birth and death. And <clears throat> he tried everything that he could find. Every practice, it's said, um, that was offered, all these Vedic and Hindu yogic practices, he tried. And he stayed with them, and he went deep into each tradition. And it, we're told that he went so deep that he even surpassed uh, the teachers of all these traditions. But in the end, he was still left questioning. He really um, never, through those traditions, never found what he was looking for to the point where he was on the verge of death. He was practicing these austere, uh, punishing practices of trying to uh, get the body to submit 
by torturing it, you know, starving it and trying to find freedom from this body. And in the end, he was left on the verge of death, not having found what he was looking for. Of course, that's when he decides to give that up and take up a different way. But we all grow up and set out on our own journey. We all are looking in some way uh, for that same kind of happiness or freedom. And Buddhist practice is really um, showing us shows us how our ordinary way of seeking, our ordinary pursuits, really do nothing but tangle us up. Like that, like Mishka, the husky, we wander off and end up getting tangled in the briars in different ways. We get tangled up in our ideas. Yeah our opinions, our strategies, and our, all these techniques and pursuits leave us still wondering what it's all about. What is life about? <clears throat> In Buddhism, uh, there are, of course, many ways that we can work to detangle ourselves. In our tradition, in the Zen school, and specifically in this uh, blend of Rinzai and Soto practice, there are, you could say, three roots of practice, three roots of sitting. There is the breath practice, which is fundamental. Breath practice, which I think all of you are familiar with, that fundamental building block to be able to settle, concentrate, and focus your minds when you want to. The breath is a wonderful tool for that. <clears throat> and the second practice, shikantaza, means just sitting. This is the practice of the Soto school. And it's a, an awareness practice, you could say, uh, a panoramic awareness this ability to stay present without attaching to any one thing. But it's a very difficult and advanced practice because, because the mind wants to cling. It wants to hone in on one thing or another and follow these streams of thought. And so it's very difficult to sit in this awareness, this this overall global kind of presence without doing anything. And so it, it's a very tricky practice, and I usually don't recommend people work on that until they're very, um, until they have much more experience. In a real intuitive way, we can understand the point of, of breath practice, you know, and we can understand really the point of shikantaza to be able to sit there without reaction, you know. Uh, today I want to focus though on the third practice of Zen, 
And that is the practice of koan. Um, there are people here sitting now that have worked on koans, and many of you have heard about them. I'm sure. Has anybody not heard of what a koan is? Anybody heard not heard that word? One. Anybody else? Okay. A koan is a, well, the word comes from the Chinese word gongon, and that means public case or precedent, kind of like a legal case. Although it's not in the legal world, it's in the spiritual world. So uh, uh, it's a precedent, something that's come before that we can look at, we can look back to, and find some truth in. And most uh, most koans are take the form of some short story or vignette or dialogue uh, between two people, most often, but sometimes one person. But it can also be simply a question. And as a practice, the Zen student takes that into their sitting meditation while they're sitting in silence. I, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation on the internet. We all have access to this incredible um, depth of information and it's so easy to just type in, you know, on, and boom, just like millions of hits come up and, right? And uh, so I just thought because of that potential and because we're beginning to try to get that into the lexicon here and to, and to make people aware that this practice is a part of our tradition, to begin to explore that a little bit. So as far as I'm aware, koan practice is unique to the Zen school. I've never encountered anything like it in any other practice. Um, so like I said, there are these stories, these stories. But unlike most stories, these stories are pretty short, maybe just one or two lines, sometimes a little longer. Uh, and they're pithy. They, they don't have mm, that kind of uh, nice ending that you're looking for in a story, you know, like the happily lived ever after sort of ending that we all want from a story, some resolution. Um, and so when people read koans, they get frustrated because they go, well, you know, what's the point? You know, like, I don't understand what this is about. It seems crazy or nonsensical. But it can be helpful to know that each koan is pointing in some way or another to the awakened mind, the mind that the historic Buddha experienced some 2,600 years ago, um, the mind that is unstained by notions of right and wrong or good and bad. <clears throat> so each koan reveals on some level in some way or another, this truth, this mind. And the student's task is to see that for themselves, to, to, but not intellectually. 
that may be a part of it, but more than that, to experience the truth of each koan. So, a first koan is usually the most difficult, it, and, and usually the most important. And sometimes it's been called a breakthrough koan. These initial koans help a student gain some beginning insight into true nature, into this fundamental non-separation that the Buddha experienced, and that each one of us really has that potential to experience for themselves. We don't use the word enlightenment too much in Zen. It's a pretty lofty type of word. But koans, as far as I'm, my opinion, really offer the, the most direct way to open us up. Even if it's a small insight, uh, which most first insights, most first Kensho experiences are, are very small. Uh, Kaplan Roshi used to say, it's like us starting, if you imagine us starting practice at midnight, it's completely dark. And as we sit with a koan, eventually the light begins to come up as we go deeper into the practice. And at some point, the sun peaks above the horizon. And there's that sun shine that just bing, and it's quantitatively different and qualitatively different than what it was before. It's and, and each koan after that, each we work through a whole curriculum of koan, each one helps to widen that experience. Each one helps to clarify our experience. In other words, the sun just keeps getting brighter and filling, and we begin to see, able to see more and more, more and more clearly. Uh, so before we go any further, why don't we just take a look at one? Okay, so we'll start with the, probably the most common koan, or the most uh, well-known one. And this is usually given to somebody as their first koan. And it goes like this. Uh, a monk asked Master Joshu, does even a dog have true nature, the Buddha nature? And Joshu said, Moo. And that was it. That's it. So it can help be helpful to understand what the heck is going on here, right? So in, um, in Buddhism, we have the teaching, we have the understanding that all things have this true awakened mind. All things. Not only have it, but are expressing it fully. But in China at that time, um, dogs were seen as this kind of lowly creature. They're, they weren't kept as pets. And 
so they they were they were seen as very um, dirty and lowly things. And so this monk asking Joshu, does even this lowly creature, this dog, have this true, perfect, awakened self? And he responded, Joshu responded, Mu, which means not, or nothing, or no. So if he had responded yes, then it wouldn't be a koan, right? Because that's the teaching, that all things have this true nature. All things are whole and complete, just as they are. And yet, when the monk asks Joshu, he says, no. What's going on? Why does he respond that way? <clears throat> so the student works on this koan. What is mu? What, what's going on? What does it mean? So in this sense, koans can be baffling or nonsensical. They don't really make sense to the logical mind. And so practicing them can become very difficult. Um, but going back to this tangling of the dog, the leash being lost in the woods, koans offer us a way to untangle ourselves. <laughs> but not in the way we might expect. In fact, when you work on a koan, you can become, you can feel like you're actually getting more tangled up. Anybody who's worked on one knows how it can feel very confusing. And so one begins to work on a koan with a teacher and sooner or later, that koan, what happens is it begins, the way a student works on it begins to shed light about how you do your life, how you approach your life. For example, you know, when we begin sitting with a koan, if we're really intent on resolving it, then we naturally will start to reach for the tools that we're used to using in our life, that tool belt. But the thing is, what we find is that those tools don't really work that well in the process. Because the main tool that we've all predominantly become used to using is our intellect. Most of us use our intellect to solve problems. And we've had a lot of success. We've all been conditioned to one degree or another to see our life as a problem-solving exercise. Day by day, if we look carefully, we'll see how we approach life trying to jump from one solution to the next. But koans are really dark to the intellect. And sooner or later, that intellectual path dries up. And so we can become more confused. And actually, this is a great sign in koan practice. When we become confused, lost, 
Because even if we understood a koan intellectually, it really wouldn't do anything for us. It wouldn't really change our life. When you know how it is when you somebody tells you something, tells you the answer, so to speak, to a problem, and it really doesn't do much for you. Um, an example of this is when I was in college, I worked at a magic shop. I walked in one day and became fascinated. And over time, I started to ask for a job there. And there was this old magician that ran the shop. And he he cut his teeth, so to speak, on doing USO shows over in Korea for the Korean, during the Korean War. And he entertained the troops that way. And when he came back, he worked as a professional magician and hypnotist for, for many, many years. But then, as his retirement, he opened this magic shop selling tricks. And so when I got a job there, my job was to learn them, learn these things and then demonstrate them for customers who came in. And so people would come in that had knew nothing about, and really no interest, real interest in magic. But what I found was that when they saw a trick that they really got puzzled by, they would want to buy it so that they could learn the secret. That's why they bought it. And so I would say something like, you know, do you want me to show you how it works before you go? And they say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so we'd go through it, and then I'd reveal sort of like the what was going on. And you could see at that point the light kind of fall from their eyes. Like, that's it? You know? That's all? And it was fascinating because they weren't really interested. It was just like an intellectual itch that they wanted to scratch, and then they were done. Um, and so they became, you know, quite disappointed. So... Koans, when we hear them, there's a temptation to want to know, what is this, what's this about? But working on a koan really, if, if, if a, a resolution was given to you without you working on it, it really wouldn't do much. Because part of the importance uh, of working on a koan is the actual work that you put into it. It is actually about the work itself. You know, the people that appreciated the magic uh, were the people that came in and put hour after hour into learning this craft, learning the psychology, learning the methodology behind magic, not the people that just came in right off the street. And so koan work is like that. It means investing ourselves with this care and attention and struggle. And only that will give the koan value. So if we're not given a solution and we've decided that a koan does have value, then the wonderful thing and process that happens is that we go to work. 
invest in it. At some point though, (laughs) pretty much universally, our resistance will kick in. People will come to Doksan, the one-on-one interview, and present their understanding of the koan. And time after time, if they're turned away and asked to go deeper, uh, people's resistance will come up. Some people will give up. Some people will try to ignore that sense of this being important and say, well, you know, I don't really want to know anyway. Some people get angry. Like, this is bullshit, you know. Um, But this is why it's important that when works on a koan, you do it with a teacher that has worked on the same koan before. Um, Our resistance in practice is a crucial element. It really is. But it may not be clear to at some times that we can work with our own resistances. And so a teacher can help us begin to see how we hold back or we pull back or we give up. Another danger of working on a koan by ourselves is that we may convince ourselves that we understand it when we really haven't. Or maybe we somewhat understand it, but maybe there's a much deeper way of understanding it. And so a teacher can help us not to settle for what could be much a deeper, much deeper experience. And so when we work with a teacher, we'll end up going through our whole arsenal of strategies to try to come to a resolution with this koan but they defy those strategies. And koans and teachers don't always give us that feedback that we want. They can give us another kind of feedback, a kind of response um, that can annoy us or can feel hurtful. And depending on our upbringing, a student's ability to or our students' response to that um, to that guidance usually falls into a couple of different categories. On the one hand, people can say, "Well, that you know, no good teacher. He doesn't or she doesn't know what they're talking. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, I don't need this." The second way is, "Oh, that teacher." thinks I'm no good, doesn't like my response, my resolution to the koan, I'm no good, and I can't do this. It's all resistance. And all this can be worked through. All of it can be worked with. And it's really good training. And it happens koan after koan. And we have something like 400 and over 400 koans that we work through. And so you can see the scrubbing process that can happen through this training. Eventually, month after month and year after year, 
we come to anticipate our own habits, our own resistances, our own reactions, and we don't really fall prey to them as much. One teacher who I heard recently give a talk described koans as being like these old, you know, these old World War II movies, um, the submarine movies. I don't know if you're familiar with them. So the ships on the surface, right? And what do they do? They they drop these depth charges into the water, and they slowly sink. And so the submarine dives down deeper, right? And the depth charges sink. Koans are like that. They work themselves down into the ocean of our mind. They become thorns that stick in us and they demand a resolution. And so the power that they have is really to disrupt our usual dualistic way of seeing the world. They show us something much richer and deeper. Again, it's not an insight that ha- that you have like while you're reading a book and you go, aha, I get it. Something much more. Koans, especially initial koans, disrupt that very notion of a me and a something to understand. That dualistic framework that we set up, me and a problem. And they also have this wonderful quality of showing us a beauty that we might not otherwise see. There's a little story I want to tell you that might shed some light on this, and maybe some of you have heard this. There was an old monastery that had fallen on hard times. And it had like five monks left. And they lived out in the woods there. And through the woods, there was a little hermitage that a rabbi used. And occasionally this rabbi would come and the monks would know that the rabbi was home because they would see the smoke coming out of the chimney. And the abbot of the monastery said, we've got a real problem here. The monastery is really coming on financial hard times. People aren't coming around. So maybe I'll go and ask this, the rabbi, if he has any advice. And so he goes to the hermitage and explains what's happening. And the, the rabbi just listens intently with, to the abbot. And he says, I know, I know, I get it. You know, people have lost the spirit that they used to have. It's just not here. Similar things are happening in town and all over the place. But I, I just don't have any off, you know, anything else to offer you. I'm sorry that this is happening. And the abbot and him just, just talked for a while. And when he was leaving, the abbot just again said, 
you know, if there's anything, any advice you can give. And the rabbi said, really, I just don't have anything. But I'll tell you one thing. I'll say one thing. And he said, the Messiah is among you. The Messiah, the Savior, is among you. And so the abbot went back to his monastery. And the monks were curious what happened. And so he, he, he said, you know, the rabbi really didn't have anything to say. And, but he did say this very strange thing as I was leaving. And he, he said, the Messiah is among you. I, I don't know what that means. And so months went by and the monks, somehow this stuck with them. And they began to contemplate what this meant. Could this Messiah, could it mean that this, when he said the Messiah is among you, could he mean one of us? Could one of us? Well, maybe. Uh, the abbot, Father Abbot, he's so giving and it must be him. He must be the Savior. He must be the Messiah. Then they said, well, surely it couldn't be Brother Eldred. You know, he's so angry of a guy. wouldn't be him. But, you know, he is often right. He really, most of the time, is right when he offers something. Could it be Eldred? Well, certainly it's not me. Could I be the Messiah? And this worked into their minds. And as they contemplated this, the monks began to treat each other differently with that off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And they treated each other with respect. And so occasionally people still came to the monastery, but they began to see that something was different among the monks. Without ever being really conscious of what was going on, people began to come back, and eventually the monastery thrived again. You can see that this rabbi, what he did was he gave all of them a koan. Who is the Messiah? Who is Buddha? What is Buddha? The Buddha said that all of us are whole and complete just as we are. And yet, most of the time, we don't feel that way. In some way, we feel broken or incomplete. So what gives? <clears throat> Our questioning practice, this koan practice, is a way for us to find out. <clears throat> 